the title of this panel is Challenges Facing the Biopharma Industry. And by design, uh, we're trying to make this a little diverse and try to cover a, a lot of the things that were not necessarily covered by the previous speakers. Uh, I'm very, very pleased to have, in addition to Dr. Spielberg, who is a senior advisor at Younger Partners, who was inter introduced before, very pleased to have Lisa Henderson, who is the editor-in-chief of Pharmaceutical Executive. We've known each other for a number of years. I've had a relationship with Pharmaceutical Executive for many years. And full disclosure, I'm a member of the editorial advisory uh, uh, board of, of, of Pharmaceutical Executive. And I have a great respect for them. Not only are they the premier uh, C-suite uh, magazine and website and webcast so forth, but also they really demonstrated, and we were at an editorial advisory meeting the other day, that they have pivoted in ways to make uh, uh, the brand even more useful uh, and, and to reflect the changes related to pandemic and so forth. And uh, I, I my hat off to you for the fact that you're able to do that. Uh, so with this, uh, this is a fireside chat. And um, uh, we've, you know, I, I had a session with the two panelists and we agreed on a couple of questions uh, to ask. Uh, they're not gonna be in uh, a, a clear order other than the, the order that I wrote them down. Uh, but, uh, but they're ones that where both Lisa and Dr. Spielberg uh, will have an opinion, but you know, from a different angle because they're, you know, they, different have, they have a different role uh, in, in the world. Um, I guess the first uh, thing I'd, I'd like to ask is, um, you know, one of the new things that's being debated uh, is this concept of the real world evidence. And that's being discussed very heavily as an alternative or to supplement uh, clinical trials. And this is obviously under discussion with the, you know, the FDA is thinking about it. So I'd like that uh, either one of you or both of you to comment on uh, whether you think that's going to happen. And so, you know, what are the issues surrounding that way of, of, of trying to get uh, uh, the right evidence versus uh, the traditional clinical trial method? You want me to start? Dr. Spielberg, do you want to start? I'll let Lisa start. That's fine. Okay, all right. <laughs> you haven't had a chance to talk yet. <laughs> okay. All right. So that's a good question. Real world evidence has come up almost from the beginning of um, the pandemic, the dialogues around clinical trials and, and structuring the designs and how to change, um, how to pivot, you know, the designs during COVID. Obviously real world evidence was discussed in FDA and it became a focus and, and movement in the past couple of years. We're really pushing, um, uh, with some guidance and trying to um, get companies to move forward with that. But I think that the, it's become uh, just higher level of discussion. And maybe it goes to what I've heard before and, and um, what others have said today is COVID has accelerated things that were already in motion. So if it was in motion, it's, it's moving much, much further. So I've already heard of a couple of um, pharma companies that have worked towards integrating some of the real uh, world evidence into some of their submissions because um, it's helpful. And 
and not having to depend, especially when you have, um, what do I want to say? Difficult therapeutic areas, maybe, you know, to, to mm -hmm. try and put some of that data in there. So I'll stop. Mm -hmm. Dr. Spielberg? No, I, I, I agree. I, I think the, the world's changing very, very rapidly, obviously. And um, I'll um, fall back on to uh, some anecdotal medical things since I do medicine uh, or did medicine a lot. Um, you know, talking to my internal medicine colleagues right now, um, and it was interesting looking at Doug Long's categories of illnesses. Um, the thing they are seeing most of right now is depression, anxiety, and insomnia. Surprise. Uh, made extremely more acute by, by the COVID situation. But the management of those things, pharmacologic and otherwise, is changing dramatically. So your background rates of all sorts of things are changing very dramatically in the real world. Um, Folks are relying on cognitive behavioral therapy. Folks are relying on mindful meditation. Uh, no co-pays, few side effects, uh, easily done at home, um, and uh, begins to supplant both the development of new medicines for those indications, um, as well as utilization of older medicines um, for those indications. Um, that's just one very simple example of what's going on. Um, but because of COVID and because of our changes in our lifestyles, how much exercise we're getting, what our diets are like, all sorts of things are changing dramatically. Um, and if you don't superimpose real world data, and we talked about electronic capture of those real world data and how to validate those things going forward, um, we could be very misled uh, by a small limited study and a small number of people uh, for almost any indication. Um, and, you know, we talked about background rates uh, of placebo. Uh, my guess is placebo rate responses are being markedly affected right now uh, by all the overlay of living through as a society what we are with COVID. Uh, and that's going to change the way clinical trials look. And if you, it makes it very difficult to rely on historic data, for example, uh, of, uh, of response rates in the past. Um, even for conditions that we consider objectively measured. Um, so are we gonna see more real world data? Yeah. Uh, is it gonna require validation? Yeah. Yeah, so it it's it's, can be promising, but has lots of complexities that yeah. we have to work through. Oh, you know, one of, one of the terms that both Lisa Yu and Dr. Spielberg mentioned when we were chatting in preparation was the whole relationship uh, with the patient is changing. In fact, it was changing before the pandemic. I mean, I think maybe that the pandemic has accelerated some things. Uh, could the two of you share your, your individual thoughts on, one, how the uh, relationship with the patient is changing in so many dimensions, including you know, in, you know, inpatient, outpatient, the collection of data, et cetera. There are a number of uh, variables that you know, come into play, but maybe you can share with the, the couple that you think would, you know, worth 
sharing with the audience in terms of what you think the issues are? So I go back to what um, Peter Mark said earlier. I think he said clinical trials are not a burden. He didn't say they were a burden, but he did say that they were, and I have it written down. Um, it's an imposition. So clinical trials are an imposition on individuals. So once you can get to a point where um, you, trial does, you, you can design a trial to make it more convenient for a patient. We've talked about patient-centric trials for a long time, you know, and trying to get the patient, um, the patient's view of the trial, um, getting it to be less than, you know, um, less burdensome, basically. Um, so that's one aspect when you look at the trials and that's got a lot, lot going on with that. You know, the wearables making, getting the data that way, the, the diaries that that was mentioned earlier, a lot of these things, you know, um, affect the trials. The other part is the, um, you know, is where the patient is going to get their prescription. And this was touched on by Doug, you know, is in the doctor's office and doctors are, uh, as he mentioned, like um, less hesitant to switch a, a patient's therapy if, they, if they're not in the office, um, you know? And so what does that mean for patients out there um, trying to access, access medicine and access their health, you know, with their physician? Those are just two aspects. There's others. Well, there are many, many, many dimensions. Dr. Spielberg, yeah. your perspective? Yeah, and you know, again, it's been mentioned before, but all human interactions are reliant on trust and confidence. Uh, when I was in medical school in the last millennium, uh, way back when, um, we talked a lot about the development of a therapeutic relationship. Uh, between patient and physician. And a lot of that was dependent on trust. It was belief that the physician was acting in the best interest of the patient. Uh, and that was their only focus. Uh, there were no side issues of, uh, of, of, uh, of cost of medicines or this medicine or that medicine or anything else. It was, I am acting in the best interest of my patient and my patient believes it. The other aspect of trust right now is what aspects of information do people rely on and believe in, quote unquote. I mean, uh, Peter Marx alluded to it, the, the very large number of people who um, uh, don't quote, believe in vaccines. Um, those are not people who have cared for children with measles encephalitis or measles pneumonitis, uh, or who had two kids in your fifth grade class as I did with polio. Um, you know, it, it, it's unfortunately, and, and this isn't going to happen quickly, but science education in our country is often sadly wanting. Um, and people are exposed to social media and other information sources that may or may not be reliable or may, not, may or may not be driven by data and science. 
And sadly, often end up very confused and really trying to struggle with um, how to put medicine into the context of their lives. And being in clinical trials, um, you know, it was mentioned by Peter again um, that uh, if we're going to understand uh, vaccine effects, uh, you need to study different populations because different populations are at majorly different risks for, um, for uh, disease progression or severity of disease uh, for a variety of reasons. And those can be economic and social and genetic and all a mixture of all of those things. And, you know, if unfortunately um, uh, we've had misadventures from Tuskegee and everything else in the past, which has destroyed trust and taken away confidence uh, of many people that their doctor is acting uh, in their best interest. So we have a lot of work to do to reestablish that trust, to reestablish a belief in science and in data and how that science and data can actually accomplish things. And most of that has to come from patients who believe it. Um, in my game, you talk to parents of children with cancer who have participated in children's oncology group studies, parents of children with cystic fibrosis who have participated in the development of some of the most effective medicines that I've ever seen in my life for cystic fibrosis. Um, having me say it, minimal effect. Having the parents and the patients say it has a real effect. And I think we have to reestablish partnerships with our patients with their families uh, in reinforcing just how vital clinical studies are to our progress and to their health. But I think you have a problem generally, which is the relationship of the patient to the healthcare system doctors. It, it's really a two-way street. In other words, it's, it's, there's also a requirement that patients themselves uh, do their homework and are educated and so forth. It, the burden can't be just on the healthcare provider and so forth. And that's, a, it's like they say, democracies uh, depend upon the electorate being, you know, putting in the energy and educating themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, not the, sy the system itself can't create a healthy democracy. Similarly, the patient, doctor, healthcare system requires that patients, they have to put a certain amount of effort in. And, and unfortunately, that's part of the problem. But I think you're it's reestablishing a new partnership and a new oh. definition of relationship. And I'm optimistic we can do it. I mean, I've seen it in yeah. my life with families and patients and foundations who really understand it and are indeed more persuasive than I am as the physician in getting the job done. Um, but it takes a partnership of all of us in order to do it. And unfortunately, in a system now where doctors can't see patients more than 15 minutes at a time, it makes it a lot harder, right? Turning to another topic, which is, you know, whenever there have been new innovations, but where the science is different in the nature of how you make the, the, the drug or how it's distributed or how it's manufactured, what it changes. And you see that, right? If you go back to the original 
you know, pharmaceutical products and how they've evolved and how they're made and how they're proved. With this explosion of new scientists, right? Gene therapy, you know, CRISPR, T cells, all these things, they, they're, they're significantly different than their predecessors in so many different ways. How do you see, and we'll start with Lisa, how do you see these new sciences impacting the whole, you know, uh, biopharma ecosystem in the healthcare system, right? Uh, and, the, and the drug companies that, you know, that, 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 that read your magazine. Yeah, so I was impressed with Dr. Marx's presentation on the gene therapy, obviously. Um, I mean, it, we talk a lot about gene therapy. So just factually knowing there's only five approved gene therapies currently in the U.S. was I knew that, but it did just to see it on the screen. Yeah, <laughs> he listed them right on the screen there, right? You know, and I thought, oh my gosh, I thought there was so many more, but that's because it they're all in development. You know, these been going on for a long time. So um, the challenges I think are, um, you know, exactly what he said is the individualized, um, it's an individualized therapy, right? So you're looking at smaller populations, you have to find these populations, you have to find these people that usually it's a rare disease, I would think mostly, um, and then taking into considerations those trials that he had mentioned this, you know, designing the trials with that smaller population, needing a natural history cohort and that kind of thing. Um, so that's one aspect. The other aspect, of course, is um, the manufacturing piece. And I think that the companies that are in the space, they are well aware that, that that manufacturing is the quality and it's it's the drug, it's the, it's they're one in the same, they can't be separated, but they also can't be scalable. So um, there's a lot going on with with those therapies um, in regard to that. Separately, I mean, the pricing issues are are there. You know, they have to be negotiated. Um, yeah, what do you do about a drug that, that, that costs 450,000 per patient, right? Right. So yeah. you're dealing with a whole different dimension yeah. than something that might be 3,000, right? Right, right. And, you know, and then it's either curative or it's, um, you know, significant, I mean, that slide with that child, I mean, how can you not, how could you even not want to put a, you put a price on that, you know, it's just, you know, um, but that's what you have to talk about in the real world, you know, you have to talk about how they, these um, drugs get priced and funded and such, and even the manufacturing is not, not an insignificant piece of it, so. Um, yeah, and a different skill set, I mean, I think, the manufacturing is totally different skill yeah. set than what they're used to, right? Yes, because it's not just, it's not manu, it's not, you know, what the, the small molecule tablet. Yeah, you know, it's, absolutely. It's, and then the delivery of it, you know, a lot of times, you know, um, the Luxterna right on the eye, you know, you're in the office with um, an injection. Yeah. Significant. Well, certainly not self-administered. And subtle, I mean, you know, when, when I was on the USP board, um, we had this whole long day's discussion on glass delamination. 
what did I know about glass delamination? Zero. <laughs> but with new excipients and new types of chemicals being put in glass, the importance of pharmaceutical grade glass becomes critical. Otherwise, the glass begins to delaminate into the IV solution and you end up with particulates and fail compliance. So, I mean, it can be something as quote simple as that. Right. Uh, all the way through, you know, how do you get uh, remarkably complex molecules into a formulation suitable for small volume delivery, as you said, into I or even small volume delivery um, uh, intravenously. I, I, I think the, the, the perspective though, and, 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 and Peter got it. I mean, if you've seen the child with, with spinal muscular atrophy, you, you know what a bad disease is. Uh, you know what an erstwhile hopeless situation is. When you see something work that well, uh, that is, in my mind, again, having been in the game 45 years, a miracle, okay? Right. Um, and we're, again, we're not, we're not, we tend to either oversell or undersell. And I think we've, on the undersell side, we really haven't been able to effectively communicate either from a price benefit point of view or cost benefit point of view. Uh, what the value in human life is to some of the new compounds coming down the pike. Uh, I mentioned the cystic fibrosis drugs. I mean, that's near and dear to my heart as a pediatrician. Um, but the, the, the bottom line is we now have drugs that 10 years ago we could not have imagined in terms of effectiveness truly remarkable effective drugs. And do we therefore have an obligation now that we have these to figure out the manufacturing, the pricing, the distribution and everything else? Yeah, because the, 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 the basic science in fact has evolved more rapidly than have all the pragmatic things that we need to deal with. Um, but we shouldn't forget how amazing some of these medicines are. And I think Peter's example, you know, was there to remind us of that. Yeah. Uh, last question that I'm gonna ask is, a, is truly a big picture question. And I think there's been a lot of discussion about healthcare systems and how they're different around the world. Uh, but it's clear, it's clear that no country says that they feel their system is working well. But certainly in the U.S., uh, everyone knows that all, that even though we have terrific technology and doctors and so forth, somehow there are things in the healthcare system that aren't working in terms of in the right behaviors. But the other is the cost, right? So um, you know, and 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 the problem of the drug industry is is it is it it hasn't done a good job of helping the general population and patients understand how they fit into the economics of the healthcare system. And, you know, to be honest, a part of it is because, you know, you go up to the pharmacy and you actually have to shell out your copay, whatever, 
a lot of things when you go to the hospital, it's hidden. In the, you know, the pricing of these hidden, so you don't you don't know how big the dollars are. So part of it is really not the fault of the drug industry, but the sad part I think, and I want you to comment on it, is sadly I think the drug industry, although it's not, it is not, uh, it, it's it's made some of its own mistakes, right, on pricing. The reality is they it should be considered a hero in terms of one, curing or prolonging life, but two, actually contributing to the control of healthcare costs, right? You, if you, if you, if you prevent a student, a patient from being in the hospital four more days, it, oh, that overwhelms whatever the cost of your drug is. So any comments though on, on, on this issue, the healthcare system, what are the, each of you maybe the one or two things that you feel, uh, you know, has to be done and it could be, related to the drug industry or could just be related in general to healthcare in order to make things better? So early on, and it's still a topic now, early on, you know, there was discussions among um, some pharma CEOs and industry that this is the time with their coming together quickly for COVID to make a real impact on their perceived negative image, you know, that this could change the way that pharma is viewed um, by the public and in a real positive way. And there's no doubt that these companies moved extremely quickly to get some of these um, collaborations working together to get their, their, their drugs into the trials very quickly and to shift gears and to do that, you know, and, but on the other hand, there is not a cohesive, like you were saying, Peter, there's just not this cohesive knowledge or this cohesive movement where um, that people can come together and see those values, that value that pharma brings. I don't know where that starts. You know, it could start by, I mean, I think it was USA Today that, uh, USA Today that Dr. Marks had an opinion piece in, you know, about, how the safety of the drugs are going in the vaccines, I'm sorry, um, you know, in clinical trials for COVID is a priority and the science is a priority. And that, you know, I, I don't know as an industry how they change that. So that's just one aside. Um, they could, they tend not to, you know, point some fingers at the lack of transparency in the, in, in the um, healthcare system. So. That's an observation, you know, uh, but you're right, Peter, where patients feel it is when they go to the pharmacy, when they're paying a copay and it's astronomically out, you know, not in line with their budget, you know, just, it's, it's just not what they're thinking of what they can pay or afford. But um, it's not always the pharma company's fault. And I don't think that's well understood. So, yeah, right. Dr. Spielberg, you get the last word. Yes. <laughs> the last word. Oh, lots of last words. I, I, I was just thinking I was a sophomore in medical school when Medicare and Medicaid were passed. This is my lifetime. Uh, and it's a snippet in the history of my profession. Mm. You know, the Greeks were talking about these things thousands of years ago uh, of medicine. Um, we are babes in the woods. 
uh, in an incredible biologic revolution. Um, even those of us who have spent our careers in it and read the literature and everything else, there's no way you can keep abreast of things. Um, the conversion of basic science into drugs that actually benefit people has never been as rapid. Yeah. And yet the language we have available to us and that we use amongst all of our citizens is inadequate to express that. Yeah. Um, so I think as, 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 as Peter talked about establishing a new playbook, we all need a new playbook. Right. It's industry's responsibility, it's medicine's responsibility, it's nursing's responsibility, it's government's responsibility, it's patient and patient advocates' responsibility. Um, if we don't, we throw out the greatest opportunity humankind has ever had to relieve suffering, to improve the quality of life. Um, and um, we have that possibility. Um, we also have the possibility of losing it if we don't in fact develop a new playbook. Well, one thing's for sure is there's gonna be a change after the presidential election. Just yeah. none of us knows what it's going to be as far as healthcare, in terms of what what the story is going to be. But obviously, there's going to be some change. So I want.